day, everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. It is the end of the year, or very close to it, and this is the time of year that everyone is always thinking about tax-deductible donations and where they would like to make them. WDET provides opportunities for adventure and discovery for you every day. And with your support, WDET will continue to bring you this wide variety of voices, of stories, and music from around the world and all around our region. So give yourself and your community the gift of programs that bring the world directly to you this giving season. Make your tax-deductible donation now, and it will be matched at WDET.org. And of course, we want to thank everybody who is part of the community that supports WDET. None of this programming is possible without your support, and we greatly, greatly appreciate it. Thank you. In the ongoing reckoning over race in America, so many of the conversations in this moment are focused on the future. And while striving for a better and more equitable future is imperative, we can't really move forward without a really comprehensive understanding of the history that got us to this point. That's why we're spending this hour looking back at the role of African Americans in the making of America, and specifically through the lens of black American labor. What role has black labor played in the building of America? And what role has America played in the effect on black Americans through their labor? Labor in so many ways defines the relationship between African Americans and America. And we want to talk this hour about how that relationship has evolved over time, how it has been defined by struggle against inequality, how it has been defined by slow progress. And joining us for this conversation is someone who is one of the preeminent experts in this field. Joe Trotter is the Giant Eagle Professor of History and Social Justice at Carnegie Mellon University. He's also the director and founder of Carnegie Mellon's Center for African American Urban Studies and the Economy. And his latest book is Workers on Arrival, Black Labor in the Making of America. Joe Trotter, welcome to Detroit Today. Well, thank you. Uh, I'm happy to be here. Yes, it's great to have you with us. So this is a really ambitious book. It spans four centuries, beginning with African slaves that were first brought to Virginia. Before we get into specifics, tell us why you decided to write this book and to undertake this monumental task of telling the story of the relationship between African Americans and America when it comes to black labor. Yes, good question. Happy you asked. Um, yes, uh, you know, two, 2019 uh, represented 400 years since the landing of the first African people uh, at Jamestown, you know, and uh, it's sort of the symbolic beginnings of African-American life in North America. And I've been in this field for over 30 years, and as I look back and started to ponder what it would mean uh, that we were entering the 400th year of African-American presence in North America. Then I, I went to work feverish, feverishly uh, trying to finish this book 
uh, so that it would be available uh, uh, once that 400th anniversary hit. And so luckily, the University of California Press uh, worked with me on the book, and we were able to get it out in time uh, for that commemoration. Hmm. Uh, and so it was an opportunity to really produce a book that had a lot of current uh, interest, because uh, every anniversary brings all kinds of of commemorations and reflections and so on. And I wanted to be part of that conversation by drawing up on my own research over the past, you know, three decades, over, over three decades, and to really create a book uh, that spoke to a larger audience. You know, I, I wanted to reach out uh, and write a book that would um, gain the attention of people within and beyond academia. You know, everyday ordinary people seeking an answer to how uh, has the African-American experience uh, unfolded over all these centuries would be able to go to a single volume that's relatively thin for 400 years mm-hmm. uh, and get a sense of um, how African-American labor played a part in shaping uh, the nation's history. Yeah. So, so that, that yo, was sort of my motivation. Yeah. yeah. So, so, of course, you cannot talk about African-American labor uh, without, uh, you know, talking about slavery, which is the entry point for us in this in this country. But you start your book in a different place. You start by addressing the contrasting narratives around the white working class and the black urban worker. Uh, first, talk a little about, uh, about that contrasting narrative, uh, but then tell us why that dichotomy was an important entry point into this broader history of black labor in America. Yes, you know, uh, yes, Jake, you know, uh, this book was also an effort to break out of certain stereotypes about African-American labor uh, before the Great Migration. You know, everybody's aware of the Great Migration of the 20th century uh, that sort of transformed African-American life and even transformed American life when uh, some 8 million, you know, Southerners migrated uh, to the urban North and West. And in that process, they helped to transform a predominantly rural people and predominantly Southern people into a predominantly African-American urban population, and mainly an African-American urban working class. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to go back a bit, quite a bit, and to sort of underscore that um, the Great Migration wasn't the first time that black people moved into cities and played a role in shaping the life of American cities. And so this book, Workers on Arrival, is really organized around that urban black working class from the outset of the colonial period to recent times. I wanted people to understand that uh, black people in cities represented an important minority of the black population long before the 20th century, and that their labor in these cities uh, was also instrumental in shaping and building and impacting the development of urban America. Hmm. And so I wanted to underscore that black people were not only contributing their labor to the production of cotton, rice, tobacco, sugar, and all of those rural staples that enriched the country, 
and sort of help fuel capitalism. But they were also contributing to America through work in places like New York, Philadelphia, and Boston in the Northeast, and as well as Charleston, uh, Savannah, New Orleans, Richmond, Washington, D.C., in the South. And so that Black people were present at the beginning of the nation's urbanization, and they stayed connected to that experience until the majority of Blacks moved into the urban environment. And so I wanted to underscore that. And that's part of what Workers on Arrival tries to do, is to connect uh, the story of Black labor, not only to the plantation, but to the city, and to show how that relationship persisted over a long period of time. Yeah, yeah. And and how does that uh, fit with the narrative about the white working class? Uh, that's one of the other sort of points you make early in, in the book. What is that relationship? Yeah, that's, that's uh, also a good question. Um, it is an integral part of the African-American working class experience. And one of the things that I underscore, and I like to make this point clear, that the experiences of black workers, as distinctive as they were, they overlapped with the experiences of white workers. Mm -hmm. And so that the American working class is a multiracial, multi-ethnic, uh, dual gender working class. It includes all kinds of people. And so I don't want us to lose that point that America from the colonial era to recent times has been driven by a kind of capitalist ethos whereby the country really places a lot of emphasis on supporting uh, the productivity activities of the owners of industry as a kind of motive force for shaping the country's economy, politics, and society. And that working people in this context are disadvantaged across the racial and ethnic line. Working people find it difficult to sustain a livable life in terms of housing, health care, uh, all kinds of needs that they have are shortchanged within the context of America's capitalist development over several centuries of time. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's the foundational point, is that black and white workers, Asian, Latino, all of these workers have something in common around this notion that they are wage earners fundamentally. Uh, they are paid for their labor, uh, and they sell their labor in this very unequal labor market where that favor the employers. And for years and years before the 20th century, employers could count on the state and the police power of the state reinforcing their interests when workers decided to protest and to really challenge uh, the capacity of these employers to continue to practice um, uh, low wages, poor working conditions, and other uh, elements of labor management to the disadvantage of these workers. So, so that's the story. I, I want to underscore that there is a relationship uh, between 
black workers experiences and white workers experiences. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Having made that point, we have to acknowledge that black workers have a distinctive experience within the working class. And white workers often are part of the problem of suppressing uh, the African-American working class and making it difficult for them to gain a viable footing in the economy and improve their lives through work, housing, healthcare, and all of those uh, items. And so from the beginning, uh, we might look back to the colonial period. Uh, during the early colonial period, uh, that was a moment where the experiences of black and white workers converged in a way that almost made their experiences indistinguishable from each other. Uh, because the first enslaved African people were really part of a labor system of unfree labor, including white indentured servants. Mm -hmm. And in the process of working during the early colonial period, some African-Americans managed uh, to gain their freedom alongside uh, some of these white indentured servants who worked off their period of indenture, gained their freedom. And some of these early Africans became property owners, and some of them actually became uh, slave owners and um, owners of some white indentured servants. You know, so there was a blurred line between being an enslaved African during the early years and being an indentured white servant. And white servants, for example, there was a kind of a de facto set of exploitative practices in which some of these servants, uh, because of the restrictions on their ability to move and to exercise certain rights, uh, they often were punished with more and more years of service. And some of them actually died as servants mm. uh, because of some of these restrictions that kept lengthening the time of service that they owed uh, to the people who owned the indenture. And so there was a blurred line. Uh, but it didn't last long. By the late um, 1600s, early 1700s, uh, white workers increasingly moved into a different status. Uh, they became increasingly free people within what I call a white republic. Mm -hmm. uh, African Americans during this period from roughly the 1670s to the 1710s, African Americans across uh, the country, uh, they were defined as enslaved people for life. And white people were deemed uh, people who would become free and that they would not only become free, but they would become enfranchised eventually and that they would have a voice in shaping uh, the, the country. Yeah, And so there was a divergence. And so now you've got a real tension, a substantial tension, between the enslavement of black people whose interests were very different uh, from a, a white working class that was now free but still exploited. I mean, that didn't, freedom for white workers didn't mean it left behind all of the ways in which employers could still exploit their labor. 
It simply meant that they had more opportunities to break away and to begin, for example, occupying land and laying claim to uh, property and going west and setting up for themselves. They could do a lot of things that blacks couldn't do, but they still had limitations. Yeah. Uh, but African-American limitation was so much greater. Were, were much, much greater, yeah. I'm talking with Joe Trotter, Jr., the Giant Eagle Professor of History and Social Justice at Carnegie Mellon University. He's also the director and the founder of Carnegie Mellon's Center for African-American Urban Studies and the Economy. His latest book is Workers on Arrival, Black Labor in the Making of America. We're talking today about the role of black labor in making America and the role of America in shaping African-American experience and modern African-American experience through labor, through the role of labor, through the dynamics of the different roles that African-Americans have played in labor in this country over time. Uh, If you want to join the conversation, give us a call and Give us a sense of what you think the role of labor is, both historically and in modern terms, in maintaining a system of inequality. We have talked a lot this year on this program about systemic inequality and especially about its roots, where it comes from, why we face the challenges that we do today. Today, we want to focus on the role that labor plays and has played in that inequality. Of course, we are in the home of the modern labor movement here uh, in Detroit, Michigan. We are also in the home, uh, or at least one of them, of the black middle class, the emergence of the black middle class out of the labor movement. The strength of that labor movement uh, in the middle of the 20th century produces an incredible amount of opportunity for black Americans in this city uh, that didn't exist in every place. Uh, So give us a call and let us know what you think uh, that plays, what role that plays in the modern uh, conversation that we're having about inequality. Uh, What does labor have to do with uh, the things that we are confronting right now uh, in this moment of reckoning in America? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter uh, and uh, put comments there, and we'll try to work you into uh, we'll try to work you into the conversation. Um, again, uh, give us a call and let us know what role you think labor plays in inequality, systemic inequality, uh, as we are fighting it today. Uh, uh, Joe Trotter, before uh, before we get to listeners, uh, I'd like to have you quickly talk a little about a little more about uh, the relationship between slavery and the development of American capitalism. You mentioned that uh, earlier. That seems to me the, the, the critical tension that exists between uh, labor and African-American freedom uh, in many ways. Yeah, um, that's okay. Um, uh, excellent question. I um, talked a little bit a few minutes ago about the importance of shifting the lens into the cities early on so that we don't get trapped into this ideal that black people before the great migration were mainly contributing on plantations and farms, Mm -hmm. okay? Uh, But the reality is is that uh, the way in which 
uh, African-American labor fuel uh, capitalist development in the United States uh, was grounded fundamentally in the rural context. Um, and it wasn't just about cotton. I want to just underscore that. Mm -hmm. Cotton became king, became the most important marketable product in the United States. And it was the single most uh, factor in the enrichment of the country until the end of the Civil War. Uh, but black people also fuel capitalism by working as sugar workers in the New Orleans district, mm -hmm. by working as rice cultivators in South Carolina, and working as tobacco workers in the upper south states of Maryland and Virginia. Uh, but it was uh, cotton uh, that really uh, helped capitalism and American capitalism in particular uh, blossom. But capitalism in the way that slaves fuel its development was not limited uh, to the United States. It was a global phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And recent historical scholarship underscore how slave labor enriched England, for example, and fueled the Industrial Revolution. Uh, the cotton pr produced by enslaved hands in Louisiana and Mississippi and other southern states fueled the development of these textile industries that really, uh, in a way, uh, jump-started the Industrial Revolution uh, in England and gave it such a privileged position in the economy of the world. Uh, but it also uh, enriched Southern whites as owners of these enslaved people uh, and the ones who reaped the labor of these enslaved people, but it also enriched uh, Northern industrialists. Uh, Lower Massachusetts and other places in New England started to establish these cotton textile uh, mills. And even Pittsburgh, the steel city, uh, produced, uh, uh, developed some textile uh, industries. And so all of these different ways in which America started to engage in textile production, slave labor, fuel uh, industrialization and capitalist development within and beyond the country, within the southern region and beyond the southern region. Yeah. Um, and so I, I want to underscore that. Uh, but one thing that we need to keep in mind is that the way in which black labor contributed to the wealth of the nation and the development of America as a sort of capitalist empire, uh, it wasn't just work in the fields or work in cities as common laborers, you know, people who dug the ditches, transported heavy materials, uh, cleaned homes and all of that. Uh, enslaved labor, uh, a substantial portion of it was skilled labor. African-Americans in the colonial period and the early national period of the nation's history were also artisans. Yes. And they worked as blacksmiths, carpenters, barrel makers, shoemakers, all kinds of craft positions. And these crafts were grounded sometimes in the skills that enslaved people brought With them. to the Americas. Sure. Yeah. As well as a kind of a slave apprenticeship system whereby owners of enslaved blacks um, 
train them and put them under the tutelage of white artisans to train enslaved people to do the kind of work uh, that they were doing. Yeah, and so uh, I, I don't want to cut you off, but uh, I, I, do, I need to take a quick break. And when we okay, come back, okay. I'm going to continue uh, this line of, of, of conversation because I want to talk a little more about slavery and the value of slaves themselves and how that fueled the early economy here in America. But I also want to get to our listeners as well. Sean and River Rouge, Carolyn and Royal Oak, we'll hear from you next. If you want to join them on the phones, 313-577-1019 is the number. We'll be right back for more of this great conversation on Detroit Today. Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. Uh, my guest is Joe Trotter, Jr., uh, the Giant Eagle Professor of History and Social Justice at Carnegie Mellon University. He's also director and founder of Carnegie Mellon Center for African American Urban Studies and the Economy and the author of a book published in 2019 called Workers on Arrival, Black Labor in the Making of America. We're talking about the role that black labor has played in the making of America and how that relates to the conversations we are having right now about systemic inequality uh, and the need to do things differently. If you want to join us on the phones, 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter and put comments there. And uh, we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, before we get to listeners, uh, Joe Trotter, I want to I want to follow up a little on what we were just talking about this this role of uh, African American labor and slavery in particular in building American capitalism. Uh, and and I want to make sure we talk just a little about not just the labor that went into uh, building uh, capitalism, the slave labor that built that went into building capitalism, but the the presence of slaves themselves that went into uh, building American capitalism, the fact that slaves were a property, but also were a form of of money, uh, of currency, that, that if you owned slaves, uh, th- that was an asset that contributed to your wealth. And much of the wealth that was built up uh, in the antebellum South was about the ownership of other human beings and what those human beings might be worth as much as it was about what those human beings might be able to produce in the fields. Uh, okay. So uh, your question uh, having to do with African-American slaveholding? Uh-huh. Yes. Oh, okay. That, okay. That's a component that well, we no, have to acknowledge. No, I mean, it, it's about, it's about the, the, the wealth that was built up in white America by owning black Americans. I mean, Mississippi, uh, when the Civil War starts, is the wealthiest state in the nation. And that's true because there are the largest number of slaves in that state. And those slaves translate into money. They are, they are wealth for, for white families. And so it's not just the cotton that they're picking or the sugar uh, that, they're, that they're helping to produce. It's their very presence that becomes yeah. uh, the basis for American capitalism. Yes, uh, that is correct. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, and so uh, your point is well taken. I think, I think that that is an important dimension of the um, 
way in which um, the enslavement of black people enrich uh, elites, property holding elites. And by the end of the Civil War, or no, by the beginning of the Civil War, some 500,000 people of color had achieved their freedom. And some of these free people of color, of course, also uh, purchased uh, and owned uh, hmm. uh, slaves. But we have to keep in mind, though, it is an ambiguous kind of legacy for African Americans because so many Southern states had outlawed uh, the actual liberation of enslaved people. And so if you wanted to, um, you know, liberate your son, daughter, or wife, or spouse, you really had to take out uh, slave ownership papers on them in order to make it legal. And so in a way, many of those who were considered chattel uh, owned by black people themselves uh, were really de facto free people. Uh, but that didn't mean that some people uh, who were of African descent, it doesn't mean that they some of them didn't own uh, these enslaved people for profit. And we have enough evidence that um, they also had trouble with runaway, runaways. They would advertise for blacks who had ran away from their custody mm. and to recover them. And they employed also uh, corporate punishment. So we have enough evidence that some of them actually did become slave uh, holders and that they practiced uh, some of the uh, violence that's associated with slavery. Mm. But that's a very small proportion of the African-American population, sure, sure. Uh, a proportion that we don't want to overstate. Yeah. Uh, but the other part that I thought you were going to get at mm -hmm. is that it, uh, black people were also a commodity right, yes. to be bought and sold for profit. And so this whole slave trading network was another dimension yes. of the way uh, profits were generated and established uh, and reinforced uh, American capitalism. Yes, yes. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's go to Sean in River Rouge. Sean, welcome to the show. Hello, Stephen. Great show today. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, I was calling in reference to the question that you asked about labor today, mm -hmm. and I was going to make the statement um, that labor now, although we are in slavery, is still um, difficult to come by. I went to school. I graduated from college in 2012. I did everything I was supposed to do. I interned. And when I graduated, I didn't have a job offer. Mm. And I had to go back and get a skilled trade and start my own business in order to find work because I ended up waiting tables until I was 25. Huh. And and why do you think that was so so difficult? I mean, like you said, you did all the right things. Why would I why would you not get I hired? I interviewed. I interviewed. I interviewed, and everyone they went with someone else, or they had another candidate. And a lot of times, it was either some. It was not what I what I knew, but who who other people knew. So it may have been someone else's son or someone's friend of a friend. Mm. And because I knew anyone, I went to school in Atlanta and I came back here after I graduated. I didn't know anyone to get me into a position. So I was forced to make my own way. Yeah. Well, John, I'm, I'm glad that it worked out. But I, but I think uh, that struggle, again, does have its roots in, in the history of, of, of black labor. Uh, Joe Trotter, I wonder if you might respond to what, what Sean's talking about and put it in the context of uh, of the work yes. that you've done. Yes, uh, I, I appreciate his question uh, because 
That is one of the great dilemmas of African-Americans who are trying to struggle to gain a viable footing in the economy. Uh, often uh, um, people consider these sort of individual uh, issues, but they aren't just about your motivation, your drive, and all of that. It's about institutionalized forms of inequality that has uh, traditionally placed Blacks outside viable social networks that connect them to opportunities and um, and openings for upward mobility. So uh, it isn't just the individuals about how African American as African Americans as a people have been systematically deprived of certain routes uh, to economic uh, viability. And I think this is part of what this young man is, has experienced. Uh, and so, um, but being creative is part of the whole legacy of African Americans too. Uh, over uh, 400 years from the beginning of the uh, slave trade to recent times, African Americans confronted those barriers and they creatively uh, carved out uh, a life for themselves and helped to, in many ways, alleviate some of the worst um, consequences, you know, being enslaved people and so on. Mm. You know, this whole idea that uh, some 500,000 uh, black people, half a million black people, had somehow secured their legal freedom by the onset of the Civil War, it speaks to a kind of resolve that existed inside the enslaved black community. Mm -hmm. That there were people who were saying, uh, um, we, we are going to be free and we're going to figure out some strategies uh, to do it. And they did. They creatively um, interacted with uh, owners and bargained and were able to uh, create an opening, you know, for themselves and, and for their families. Uh, so, yeah, so the challenge is there at all moments, but then there's also the creativity uh, that African-Americans employ uh, that enable them uh, to continue to move forward and to, to retain hope mm -hmm. in the face of some extraordinarily uh, stiff uh, barriers. Mm -hmm. uh, in your book, you write a lot about the role of unions in securing black employment and, and opening doors uh, for employment opportunity that, that were previously closed. And you write a lot about the role that African-Americans played in that labor movement, which, of course, is part of the story uh, of this city, of the city of, of Detroit and the way uh, it developed. I wonder what you make today of the importance of unions and organized labor in opening doors for African-Americans that were that were previously closed? Yes, I, I, I think the, um, the labor movement, as you mentioned, is an important part of the story uh, that I um, tell uh, in Workers on Arrival. Uh, but before I answer that particular question about today, what I think about today, and that is something I think all of the listeners will have something to say about uh, that is, um, I think, you know, uh, instructive for me, you know, scholars who work on history. But that for black people, many for a long time, especially following the Civil War, uh, white workers developed this mentality that somehow black workers were anti-labor union. Hmm and that they uh, were not interested in collectively organizing to improve their condition. 
that all they were interested in was breaking strikes and undermining the integrity of the white labor movement. And uh, of course, black people did break strikes, but there were great rationales for breaking strikes. But the point that I want to underscore is that alongside, and, and white exclusion of blacks from labor unions put them in a bad position. Uh, so uh, alongside their exclusion from white labor unions, black workers developed their own independent, separate, all black labor unions. Um, you know, from the antebellum period on, you see them forging their own uh, African-American labor movement. So it's not that black people were anti-labor, they were anti-discriminatory white labor. They did not want to have anything to do with exclusionary white labor unions. But in their own community and in their own interest, they were always pro-labor union. And they believed they had a right to organize, to push employers to do right uh, in terms of labor wages, working conditions, uh, treatment, and all of that. Okay, and so I think, and of course, when the opening came and they could actually enter a predominantly white labor union, they did enter those unions, mm -hmm. and they entered those unions early on. Uh, the most prominent examples in the years after the Civil War, uh, the Knights of Labor, the United Mine Workers of America, and later the Industrial Workers of the World. Now, these may have been minority interracial movements, but they were movements that African Americans felt were uh, reflective of the kind of support that they were looking for among white workers. And so there are some examples um, of that kind of um, uh, development. But those interracial labor development uh, tended to take off during the 1930s uh, under the impact of New Deal labor legislation that actually started to underscore the legality of workers organizing and beginning to tell uh, corporate America that you can no longer suppress workers' rights. They have a right to bargain on their own behalf, and you do not have a right to prevent it. And so there is where you begin to see Black people moving into the organized labor movement, a multiracial labor movement, and beginning to, to some extent, gain some of the benefits uh, of that movement. Uh, initially, seniority benefits was considered a great uh, plus moving into those unions uh, that they could no longer automatically be the first hired or first, <laughs> well, the last hired and, and the, the first, first fired, fired, you know right. the, the, the term. Sure. Uh, they couldn't. And so, uh, but the truth is, it was never any, uh, a level playing field. Blacks inside the labor movement continued to face challenges along the color line. And one of the major challenges had to do with the way seniority worked in a very limited way to improve the status of black workers. Uh, they were pretty much limited to jobs within the segregated, uh, mainly common, quote, common labor uh, departments in which the ceiling for movement up was very low. And if they wanted to bid on better jobs outside those areas, 
then they were forced to lose their seniority and take a chance, a big risk. Mm. And that was untenable for large numbers of workers. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we'll continue this conversation with Joe Trotter about uh, labor, black labor, the history of black labor, uh, the way it plays out in modern terms in the systemic inequality that we are talking so much about and thinking so much about how we remedy. We want to hear more from you as well on the phones. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Kathy in Detroit will hear from you. If you want to join her, give us a call and let us know what you think about the, the role of labor in the conversation about systemic inequality and racism uh, in America. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter and put comments there and we'll try to work them into the show. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. News, music, culture, and community. Every day on 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks very much for tuning in. My guest is Joe Trotter, Jr., the Giant Eagle Professor of History and Social Justice at Carnegie Mellon University. He's also the director and founder of Carnegie Mellon's Center for African American Urban Studies and the Economy. His latest book, published in 2019, is Workers on Arrival, Black Labor, in the making of America, we're talking about the role that uh, labor has played in the struggle of African-Americans across many centuries here in America. We're also talking about uh, the ways in which uh, that struggle for labor fits into the larger context of this conversation that we are having nationally right now about systemic inequality and racism. As always, you can join us on the phones at 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page or to Twitter. Put comments there. We'll try to work you into the show. Let's go to Kathy in Detroit. Kathy, welcome to the show. Hi. Thank Hi. you, Stephen. Sure. Go ahead. Hi. Thank you, Stephen. Uh-huh. Thanks for having uh, Dr. Trotter on. Dr. Trotter, it's a pleasure to hear about your new book. I will purchase a copy, but I wanted to share something with you um, that possibly you can um, help us begin to consider here in Detroit. I happen to be a member of Carter G. Woodson's branch here in Detroit, uh, Sala. And as you know, Dr. Carter G. Woodson, the father of black history, did extensive studies on labor with blacks in America. Um, and as we come to our current time, uh, as it re- reference to Detroit, we are going to, in the next 15, 20 years or less, be confronted with a lack of employment in the manufacturing industry Mm. due to the new style in which cars and trucks are going to be manufactured. Mm -hmm. There will be no longer a need for uh, plants to employ several thousands of um, people. We can look to um, eastern countries and see where now they use 3D printing to build cars. They have huge 3D printing um, uh, assembly places where you can put a car together in a matter of uh, uh, minutes. They have huge, maybe mile, huge, long uh, facilities for manufacturing cars. And this is what is 
in front of us here in Detroit, for sure. example. Yeah. We need, we're going in a few years, and the studies are already being done, and the major big three in Detroit are grappling with what are they going to do with unionized um, employees mm-hmm. and what kinds of opportunities for employment will be offered. So, sir, could you possibly just look in your futuristic um, <laughs> view on what we can do as yeah. look into the crystal ball here, right? <laughs> Kathy, to I re- prepare oh. for this. Yeah, Kathy, I really appreciate the call and the and the really provocative question. Uh, Judge yes. Otter, go ahead. That's an extraordinarily uh, important uh, a question that uh, that needs to be addressed on a regular day to day basis. Sorry about that. It seems that I have some noise in my background. Uh, bear with me for just a second, okay? Sure. Sorry about that. Oh, um, look, I. Look, I I want to answer that. First of all, thanks for that question. But I want to answer it by saying that that is an issue uh, that is magnified perhaps in Detroit, but it's uh, an issue for Pittsburgh and other major Everywhere. industrial sure. cities that have lost industries over the last um, two to three decades. Uh, and so moving forward, it's going to be a great challenge. But I see... Uh, uh, education and access uh, to these new digital age uh, processes and and uh, arrangements that there has got to be greater access for African Americans in the training section of the economy uh, to prepare uh, for alternative uh, kinds of employment. Uh, to the employment of the old uh, manufacturing sector. And your guess about how well we're going to be able to do that uh, is going to be as good as as anyone, Mm. uh, especially uh, myself. But as a director of the Center for African-American Urban Studies and the Economy, what we're trying to do is to situate that conversation within a broader historical context And we're trying to underscore how African-Americans in the past faced with these kinds of economic crises uh, became very active in forging strategies uh, that allowed them to move forward and make some incremental uh, kinds of, of, of progress. You know, the great migration and the transition into the industrial sector, for example, uh, was a process uh, that involved African-Americans losing out on the land, right? Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of mechanization processes taking place on the land that were, you know, mechanical cotton pickers, flamethrowers, all kinds of things uh, helped to unanchor Blacks uh, from their agricultural moorings. Uh, and so they found a way to enter the manufacturing economy. And for a moment, that was a great advance over uh, this declining agricultural sector that has sustained African-American life, even though on unequal terms uh, during the previous generation. So we have to believe that there is a way in which African people uh, are already mobilizing uh, to find ways to really make the transition into a new economy uh, that is evolving all the time and that is also changing at the expense of the people who uh, were anchored at 
particularly the bottom of the earlier structure. Mm-hmm. So it was a big challenge. Thanks for the question. I just hope uh, that I had better answers. But um, <laughs> no, I think that's that a ice until we talk again. <laughs> I, th- I think it's a very fair answer. I don't think anybody really does have a, a solid answer. Uh, quickly, I, we, we've only got about two minutes left, uh, but we got two questions on Twitter about uh, the invocation of the imagery of slavery when people talk about things that they don't like today. For instance, people say, my job uh, makes me basically a slave now. Or uh, there have been some comparisons this year to people saying uh, they feel like they're living in slavery because they're required to wear masks because they can't go outside because of the pandemic. Um, again, we've only got a short time, but I, I wonder what you make as someone who's studied labor and race this way about those kinds of comparisons. Okay. Yes. I think that what people are saying when they say that is that uh, if you say slavery, that's a status that implied um, uh, lack of power, mm-hmm. influence, and control over one's existence. Um that's one way to look at it. It's, it's almost like an externally imposed status uh, in which the powerful shape the experience. Uh, but we need to flip it over on the other side. The people who were enslaved were people of intelligence, creativity, and power. Hmm. Uh, and so that uh, the enslavement experience was not only one-sided, having to do with debilitation and exploitation per se. It was also another side in which the enslaved people produced some of the most important cultural yes. um, contributions to the nation's history. The enslaved people helped to create um, the conditions under which some Four million black people were liberated. They were liberators, not just enslaved people. And by doing that, they also helped to broaden the base of American democracy in a real way, open the door, you know, for black people to finally become enfranchised and for women to become. So these are the people. There's a heroic set of real African descended people underneath that rubric of slavery, and we have to keep teasing out that dimension of the identity of African people yes. so that we can make better sense uh, of the history and we can also appreciate uh, the people who were enslaved and what they brought uh, to that experience. Yes, yes. Uh, great answer to that uh, question, by the way. Uh, so, Joe Trotter, uh, thank you very much for joining us. This was a wonderful conversation. Okay, thank you. Appreciate mm-hmm. it. That's going to do it for me today. I'll be back on Monday when we're going to talk with Detroit Mayor Mike Duggan, who just announced his plans to seek re-election in next year's municipal elections. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again on Monday.